The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everybody this evening. And for people who are joining in, um, we began our retreat yesterday evening and we've been contemplating the body as a home or sometimes we say as a working ground, the working ground for awakening, an embodied awakening. And it brings to mind, you might have heard this, but a translation from one of the lines in a Rumi poem is something like, uh, it's not just a drop, we're not just a drop in the ocean, but the ocean in a drop. And that's a really useful line to contemplate because in terms of how we've been conditioned to think about spiritual practice, it's very common for us to think of, you know, I'm, oh, poor little me. I have this fragile aging body and this conditioned mind, conditioned by culture, conditioned by gender, conditioned by all of these conditioning forces limited in all those many ways and I yet I aspire to be come the ocean to wake up and to this universal truth that's a very typical sort of description of the spiritual path oh woe is us little drops hoping to one day be part of the ocean and I, I love these teachings that sort of flip things because, uh, you know, in terms of how the Buddha at least presents things, the whole point of being on a path is to see what we're not seeing. So we need, you know, we need to engage life, engage our body, our embodied lives, in ways that challenge and are fresh and creative. So just with this little passage, you know, imagining that we're the ocean, learning how to be free, learning how to be quite alive and loving as a drop. Instead of, I'm just a lowly little drop trying to be the ocean, it's a much more interesting, provocative spiritual reflection to imagine <clears throat> the Buddha, the ocean, learning how to be comfortable as a drop. How does freedom, how does real love, real energy, bright, creative, nimble, loving, wise energy, how would that move here and now with this conditioned heart and mind and this body, this location? What does freedom look like here? And to me, this is much more <clears throat> the way that I understand the Buddhist teachings, how the Buddha can manifest in our relative embodied existence. In my ordinary mundane relationship with my partner, with my body, with my job, with my culture, with my communities, 
what does that very alive dynamic of liberation, of freedom, of unconditioned love look like shining through this life? Because otherwise we get in the habit of thinking, and this, and this became quite um, chronic in a lot of the Buddhist cultures, this very powerful thought that awakening's not for us. You know, it's my life is too busy or too tied up with mundane things, earning a living or this and that. So instead of really being interested in the possibilities of freedom, I'm just going to try to set good in motion. So one of the things that can be found to be quite common in Buddhist cultures is this strong orientation to making merit, as they would call it. So I do acts of generosity, I try to keep the precepts, the ethical precepts of not harming, with the hope of sometime in some imagined future life having more ideal conditions to wake up and <clears throat> to realize the freedom that's available. And you, you know, the other thing about this flip, how does the Buddha, how does the ocean learn how to manifest as a drop in this ordinary life? <clears throat> it really challenges the idea that any particular condition, like being older, or having a dull mind, or having a bad knee so you can't sit cross-legged, or, you know, all these things that we imagine somehow get in the way of being free, being a good human being. It really challenges that. It, it turns that into a teacher, like the presumption is freedom, love, knows how to show up here. So, in a way, I need to get rid of those ideas that somehow this particular circumstance, being sleepy, being restless, whatever it might be, somehow limits what can be expressed in this moment. It really opens our mind. And it also makes it seem less personal, which fits with the Buddhist teachings. It's almost like it's not about me being free, but somehow this relative conditioned mind, you know, the psychological conditioning, emotional conditioning I have, this particular body, it is what it is. It's just, you know, an expression of nature. But there is some capacity for freedom to work with even this limited experience I have as a human being. And that really gets us interested in the essential question, you know, what's actually in the way of freedom? And this brings us into our body, you know, because if we, our normal relationship with our body, and, and really the body is just the entry point to this conditioned place, this set of circumstances we call our life. And when, you know, when we challenge that, 
Yeah, we, we can start to see our life with new eyes, relate to the body with new eyes. And actually more than reformatting how we see the body and how we see the circumstances of our life, it really changes how we understand what freedom is. I read not that long ago, um, some of you know Tani Saro, Tanisaro, sometimes people pronounce it. He's a well-known Buddhist scholar, Buddhist monk and teacher and abbot of Wat Metta uh, Monastery outside of San Diego, California. A really important teacher here in the West because of all the translating and writing he's done besides um, teaching. And um, he was sharing a story about one of his Thai teachers. He practice, practices in the Thai forest tradition. Uh, he is, he's an American, but he spent some time in Thailand as a monk before he came back to the States. And one of his well-known Thai teachers had said something like, when you realize the freedom that's available through practice, through the awakening process, when you realize that, it doesn't matter that that freedom is impersonal. And that's, that's sort of this, uh, this flip. Like, on the one hand, really owning with a lot of integrity the limitations of our conditioned minds and hearts and bodies, the aging process that we have in our body with our body, and but, but understanding that whatever we might like sense about the limitations of my conditioning, my circumstances, somehow the freedom being unconditioned, somehow it's not stained by any of these factors. Now, I'm not saying that these factors like being sick or being old or being dull or being restless or any number of circumstances that we might <clears throat> have to deal with. I'm not saying that they're not confusing. They don't get our attention and sort of misdirect the heart that seeks freedom. Because we believe this thought, you know, I can't practice until this problem is taken care of. In fact, you know, those of us who've been at it for a while, you know, have had a Buddhist mindfulness practice for a long time. You know, imagine if we added up all the time in formal meditation, on retreat, or just a mind directed toward practice, how much of that time was somehow entangled with a thought, I need to fix this before I can get back on track. You know, just some strong identification that there's something personally blocking my practice. I remember in one of my earlier uh, three-month retreats at Inset Meditation Society in Massachusetts, Joseph Goldstein uh, saying something, I think it might have been in a talk on the hindrances and some instructions he gave about working with those qualities, those factors of mind that hinder the stability of present moment awareness. And he said something like, 
don't believe the thought, I can't practice until this goes away. <clears throat> and it was really helpful because that thought comes up a lot, right? So to have that instruction, then every time there was that very straightforward thought, I can't practice until this thing gets fixed, or some version of that, then I would remember that teaching. Oh yeah, don't believe that thought. <laughs> That's just a thought. And it really created some space. So every time the experience of our body, the experience of our mind, the experience of our outer circumstances seems to very compellingly tell us that this is in the way of freedom or this is in the way of kindness or this is in the way of calm, of peacefulness. We, we want to practice not believing that thought. Who knows? Because, you know, if we believe that thought, then we don't look. We don't open. We don't actually check it out. This is a <clears throat> quote from Wendell Berry, and it was in, I forget if it's an article or one of his books, The Unforeseen Wilderness. And he writes, Always in the big woods, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown, and it is your first bond with the wilderness you are going into. What you are doing is exploring. You are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. It is an experience of essential loneliness, for nobody can discover the world for anyone else. It is only after we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond, and we cease to be alone. I really like this piece here where he says, you are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. And I mentioned this to the group already, you know, that being mindful of the body, opening to the body, it's not actually the body so much that we discover. I mean, to some degree, getting intimate with the sensations of the body. You know, we get to know the specific patterns and tendencies and qualities here in the body. But we really initially get a sense of the, the truth of nature, Dhamma, as we say in Buddhism, the underlying nature, the underlying way that it is, and the nature of the mind we really see that this activity of our life is just what it is. It's hard to put into words. One way that a, a teacher mentioned or described this is, you know, the more we train our heart to be stable in the present moment, clear, kind, this continuity of present moment awareness, and we study, we open to the body, 
the more that we get intimate with the body, the more we understand the nature of the mind. Or the more that the nature of the body and the nature of the mind come together. And it's sort of shocking in a way. I'll just give you one simple example of this. This is something that I'm guessing and more than a handful of you have actually experienced. Maybe everybody on this talk has experienced this to some degree. But, you know, when we get some continuity of mindful awareness, feeling the breath, feeling the totality of the sensations moving in the body, just being in the present moment with some continuity, some interest, some tranquility, non-reactivity, right? And the normal, what we imagine is sort of the absolute truth of the body, that it's solid, you know, it's got weight, it's like here, it's a real thing, you touch it, you feel it. Well, it's not that uncommon for meditators or just people who have a lot of stability of present moment awareness to realize that that experience of the solidity of the body is just one perspective. And it's not any more true than all the other perspectives, like the body is actually like space, open space. Or the body is a movement of energies. Right? So, this, uh, this investigation, you know, using the stability of present moment awareness and using some of these recommended starting points like being with the breath, being with the sensations of the body, being with the more general experience of embodiment, the five physical senses, this first foundation. It really leads the mind into the state of humility. It really trains the heart and mind to be a good learner by forcing it to abandon fixed views. You know, we can't really open to the body with the mind identified with some idea of what the body is. That's not opening to the body. You know, that's like trying to confirm an opinion. I think the body's this way and I'm going to prove it because right now I'm going to open to the body and I'm going to look only at the data that confirms my fixed view. And then we see what we expect to see. The Buddha says, no matter how we conceive it, it will always be otherwise. And this is especially true with the body. This is what the, <clears throat> the Buddha has said way back 2,500 years ago, recorded in the Pali Suttas, whoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever rivers flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. So that's what I meant earlier when I said that the body 
is really our training ground, our working ground, our teacher. And we submit to our teacher and let it teach. And when we give ourselves to this teacher, we train ourselves, get inspired to be intimate with the body and to develop continuity of awareness, not just when we're sitting in formal meditation, but all day long. I mean, it just makes so much common sense to live a life aware of the body, intimate with the body. I mean, just on the practical level, we're just going to bump our heads so much less, <laughs> let alone all the other accidents that come our way, if we just are in the body. And the body is such a powerful mirror for what the mind is doing. So when the mind is afraid or the mind is tied in one way or another, we'll feel it in the body. If we're aware of the body, we'll notice that the mind is digging a hole, right? We did this chant um, this afternoon, the, one of the five remembrances about karma, how we are the owner of our intentional actions, born out of our intentional actions, heir to our intentional actions, our karma. Right? We lay down, where, does, where are all of those impressions stored? Well, here, there's the only place those skillful and unskillful impressions that have been laid down, they have to be here. Maybe not on the surface, maybe in some kind of latent uh, place, but they're here to be experienced when, you know, the supporting conditions are present and they come to the surface and express themselves. So this, um, when we submit to our teacher, then we're sort of rallying all of these wholesome qualities, right, that we need, like the capacity to actually be interested, this capacity to be mindful, like, oh, this is being known. This re mindfulness is this reflective awareness that knows it's like this now. And joy and energy and tranquility and stillness and concentration and equanimity, this dispassion. So these are the, so you might recognize the list of the seven factors of awakening, but you don't need to worry about it because these wholesome qualities naturally start showing up more and more when we become a good student of our life. Like going back to what I said about the refuges last night, Buddha knowing Dhamma, this capacity to be awake, clearly awake, open, to what? Well, to the body, to the way that it is, to this moment, Dhamma, the way it is. And by this marriage, Buddha knowing Dhamma, that's how we bring, that's how all these wholesome, liberating qualities get stabilized in our heart or in the moment. There's really no awakening without this marriage of Buddha and Dhamma, being awake to the way that it is. And the body, in a very real sense, is this gateway to reality. 
to the way it is. Because we want to realize the mind, the heart, that doesn't have a problem with anything, right? So when the Buddha talked about awakening, when the Buddha talks about freedom, he's talking about a freedom that's unconditional. It's not the freedom that arises when we have everything we want, we're on vacation, we're in the hammock, we've got our favorite beverage, favorite music, and there's a kind of happiness when the conditions are exactly the way we like them. But that's not the happiness the Buddha talks about. He talks about an unconditional release, an unconditional happiness or peace, meaning it doesn't come and go because of circumstance. So that happiness that we're interested in, right? Because any other pursuit for happiness that's conditioned is a what? It's a setup for betrayal. Because, okay, I'm going to get my financial act together. Well, until it's not, you know, or until we die. So all these other ways we look for security and happiness are vulnerable to change. We know that, but we don't know a better way. So we pursue all of those limited ways to create safety. And then, you know, maybe we bump into the Buddhist teachings and he says, yeah, there are limited ways to be happy. It's always a setup because whatever security we get, will be proven to be insecure. But go ahead, you know, do your push-ups, eat good food, increase your health, be financially responsible as best you can. Do what you can. There's nothing wrong with it. It's totally appropriate. What makes it a cause for suffering is imagining that that security is secure. Because that's the setup. And then if he gets your attention, he says, and... There is an unconditional release, an unconditioned happiness and peace. And that's sort of, to me, I don't know about you, but that's, that's interesting. And this is how that connects with the body. Because it keeps us honest, like our body and the imperfect circumstances of our lives, like the world we live in, and, you know, my personality is imperfect, Everybody know, everybody I know, their personality, sorry about this, is imperfect, right? So we use this grounded reality of being in community together, having bodies, living in a world, living on a planet that seems pretty sick just in terms of the environment, right? We use the limitations of this to realize the release of a heart that's not dependent on how messy and limited everything is. So the fact that my body was born and will die, then it's like if I get really honest and intimate with that, what can be really intimate and unafraid with that? What quality, What what is that mind or heart that's not afraid to have an intimate and honest relationship with all the complexities, all the messiness, all the limitations of my life. 
So you see that this that this exposure to the body, this intimacy and exposure with the body, with all the complexities of our life, like I one of the things that been really rich in my own practice these last 10 or 12 years, you know, I always considered myself, you know, a good person. But I, you know, like a lot of us about 10 years ago or so, just looking again at my location as a white male in our society, and just all the presumptions that I had about, you know, justice and being a good person and caring about racism and caring about injustice and class and economic inequities, which, you know, made sense back then. I think I think I was in some senses a good person and responsible person. But just how much I didn't understand, how much I didn't see. So when you take like one of those issues that for me is just very alive, like what is the skillful, liberating way to relate to privilege, being economically privileged, racially privileged? I mean, in so many ways, I've had a good education, I'm healthy, right? So I have a lot of advantages. So how to relate to that? Because the tendency is, you know, if I'm not paying attention, the tendency is to sort of uh, like lock it up lock up my privilege, my my good situation, so it can't be taken away from me. And we don't realize on the surface that that's a, that move comes out of fear. Like, I don't know who I'd be if I lost my economic comforts, you know, that my economic security. I don't know who I'd be if I lost my health, you know, and be, got cancer or something like that. I don't know what I'd who I'd be if I lost my job and the respect that comes with my job and on and on like that. So we're unconsciously mostly clinging to whatever privilege, whatever good stuff is going on in our lives. So the more we take an honest look, both in terms of breath and subtlety, we start to see how messy it is and how insecure and uncertain it all is. It's certainly in the big picture. It's all going to be taken away, <laughs> you know, ultimately, right? So there's nothing anybody's going to be able to hold on to. So when we get really honest about that, and then it really begs the question, well, how can the heart, how can the mind show up when I'm being really honest about insecurity, vulnerability, really honest about how complicit I am in other people's suffering, how I can't locate myself away, that somehow, whether I want it to be true or not, somehow I do feel responsible for the suffering of others. And it's, it really complicates things to feel responsible for the suffering of others. It's messy, isn't it? Because what do I do about it? And can I ever do enough? So, but see, this is exactly what the heart needs for the path. Because we want to uncover a wisdom and understanding that 
in a peace that isn't diminished by complexity and messiness, right? Isn't that what we want? We want to be peaceful and equanimous and balanced, even while we're in this place where, like, I, mean, I, I didn't raise kids, but I'm imagining some of you have raised kids and are raising kids or dealing with grandkids or whatever. And that's another one of these really obvious places where it's complex. You know, what do you say? Do you allow your kids to do this or not? Do you tell your kids who are raising their own children how you think they're doing it wrong? Or do you just let them make mistakes? I mean, even something like that. How involved do I get? And to lean into these places, not to lean in so I can figure it out and get really competent and do it right, but to lean in precisely because there may not be a perfect answer to how we deal with all these complexities. But you see, then it gets it, it makes it, that complexity makes, it's almost like the cauldron that purifies the understanding, like how to be free, how to be not thrown off by the mess by the complexity, by the ambiguity, by the absurdity of being born, living. I mean, it's just, I'm just now in my early 60s, but it's just, it's so humiliating to see what starts to happen to the body, you know, and just uh, both mentally and physically. That this is just the ordinary run of it. This is how it works, you know, things build up and then things fall apart. And to be able to not have to get involved with denial and distraction to survive, but to like be able to be have a really clear and honest um, relationship to the world as it actually is. To be able to keep showing up and dancing and doing the best we can without feeling we have to hate ourselves because our response was imperfect or judge other people because we think their response was imperfect. But we have this uh, beautiful balance that becomes more and more unshakable. And I really feel like this is the, this is what we get with mindfulness of the body. A little later in that same sequence of passages, the Buddha says, those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the freedom of the deathless. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste this freedom. In early Buddhism, sometimes awakening is called the deathless. Those who are heedless of mindfulness of the body are heedless of this freedom of the deathless. Those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. And, you know, the way the Buddha taught mindfulness of the body, it's it's sort of the core. Like, it's not something to do when we're just sitting, but we this is what protects us. Because to the degree that I've cultivated this intimacy, this continuity of present moment awareness with the body, it's it really gives the heart immunity from 
I mean, just to be blunt, doing stupid stuff. Because that intimacy with the body uh, creates this uh, feedback mechanism. So if I start to act out some greed or some hate, right, it just becomes so apparent. Because to be mindful of the body means that there's this refined balance, right? Because the body is a wild thing. It's limited, it's imperfect, it's wild, it can't actually be controlled. So to be truly mindful, present with the body, requires a lot of wisdom and a lot of love. And so that love and wisdom is there so that if some emotional reaction gets triggered, it's going to see it in living color. Oh, honey, that is not going to help. You know, wanting revenge, wanting to put that person in their place, that is not going to help. So we use the body all day long to support this refined, intimate, balanced, present moment awareness. And then that continuity of present moment awareness is what really protects us. It furthers the awakening process and it really protects us when conditions arise that trigger some of our old habits, not so skillful habits, to be greedy, to be hateful, or self-destructive in some way, then that refined balance sees it in living color. And what does it see? It sees, honey, this is not the way. This is not going to help. And it's so much easier to abandon these unwholesome, unhelpful tendencies when they're seen in living color like that. Otherwise, what happens is, you know, something gets triggered, some not so helpful emotion gets triggered, emotional reaction gets triggered, and the mind is already identified, already sort of started acting it out before mindfulness catches up and realizes that it's gotten entangled. And then, you know, those patterns get ahead of steam. It's not so easy to unhook. How many times have we noticed that we were all entangled with some anger drama, but it was too juicy to put it down? We sort of knew it was unskillful, but there wasn't enough wisdom to actually drop it. Maybe we drop it and we pick it right back up and we drop, but we're hooked, we're seduced. And a lot of times when we get involved in these reactive, unskillful patterns, emotional patterns, psychological patterns, they don't really cease until the mind gets exhausted and kind of the drama runs its course. And who knows how much damage we could have set in motion for ourselves and those around us in that time. Because it's just like quite literally the mind is hooked. And it isn't until the sort of thing runs its course and the whole system is exhausted, having been pushed around by the drama, that we have a little space. So the key is to catch it early. And to catch it early, mindfulness has to be well established and refined, balanced. And that's really the purpose of working with the breath, working with the body, these are, you know, generally speaking, relatively neutral experiences. Feeling the body generally, feeling the breath and the body, 
And so it creates this opportunity with time and with practice, this being intimate with the body, with the breath in the body, becomes a good habit for awareness. And so the awareness is using this intimacy to keep itself interested, energized, tranquil, still. These beautiful balancing, this beautiful balancing of the factors of awakening all life long. It's not just like when we're on retreat or doing a sit, but all life long we're using our awareness of the body. Even when we're talking, even when we're doing everything else, part of the mind is always using the awareness of the body to keep the knowing mind in this beautiful balance. It's really this ongoing training, working ground. Keeping the mind so that it's ready to discern what's skillful and unskillful as other experiences come our way. We're never caught flat-footed. And the Buddha says this in a very descriptive sutta. I won't read the whole thing because he goes on and on with these very colorful metaphors or similes. But he says something like, uh, you know, if you took a heavy stone and you threw it into soft clay, it would really, that stone would make a, a deep impression in the clay. And he says, that is an example of somebody who doesn't have mindfulness immersed in the body when an unwholesome tendency gets triggered there's going to be a very deep impression left in the heart in the mind stream and then he says for somebody who does have their mindfulness immersed in the body it's like taking a ball of yarn and throwing it at a solid wood door it's not going to make any impression whatsoever. And this is, you know, when we talk about real Dharma power, spiritual power, it really comes not from kind of power in the normal sense. It's really this power of discernment. And this power of discernment has to be moment by moment by moment where the mind can discern what's helpful, what's not helpful, what's conducive for release and peace, what's conducive for stress and suffering. That's what gives us protection, the capacity to know the way. Like, you know, we talked about karma briefly earlier in the talk, which is really actions done with intention and some of those actions that are done with intention are liberating and some actions done with intention lead to suffering and without that mindfulness immersed in the body without being grounded here and now in the physicality then when the mind is about to create karma you know, basically the mind is on autopilot. It does what it is inclined to do. And I don't know about you, but a lot of our habit energies are not so, not going to be planting good karma seeds, right? We just keep doing what we've always done, getting the same results. And then the Buddha says in another place, in the middle link discourses, 
when mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and well undertaken, these benefits may be expected. What benefits? One becomes a conqueror of discontent and delight. Right? So the ordinary unhappiness and ordinary happiness doesn't throw us around. Oh yeah, I'm not happy and that's okay. Oh yeah, I'm happy, no big deal. One becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. One bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, and mosquitoes, <laughs> wind, the sun, and creeping things. Remember, back in the day, the Buddha and his Sangha, the monks and nuns, they basically camped out most of the time, you know. They didn't really have too many structures that they stayed in. One endures ill-spoken words, like somebody insulting you, and bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. And finally, one here and now enters upon and abides in the deliverance of the heart, right? the awakening that the Buddha points to. So this is our task. And like I said earlier, it's just there's so much common sense, you know, that as a human being with a body and a mind, one of the primary tasks, we should be teaching our kids this, you know, starting at age three and repeated forever, talking to our friends about this, but our primary task is to use the heart, the sensitive heart, the knowing mind, in the service of having a very deep, sensitive relationship with the body. Because it's the primal relationship. All of our other relationships are really expressions of the relationship we're having with our body. So we use the mind, the heart, to learn how to be intimate, continuous, peaceful with the body. And then all the other relationships we have, like the relationship we have to our own emotional reactivity, or the relationship we have to difficult people, or the relationship we have to beautiful experiences, all of those relationships will be an expression of the stability and the sensitivity of our relationship with the body. And if we haven't done that primal work of cultivating a beautiful spiritual relationship with the body, wise and kind relationship with the body, well, it's no wonder that so many of our other relationships, like to mosquitoes and other things, are off, you know, because we don't know how to relate to it. So my hope is for myself and for all of us that we let our body be our, our deep, wonderful teacher. And it's going to teach us how to be present, and it's going to teach us how to let go. So may this be so. Nice to have you all here. We're going to take a, 
about 10 minutes now to take a little walk, stretch the body in a mindful way. We'll come back at 8.30. We'll do um, a little chant and a little loving kindness reflection and sit together uh, for about 25 minutes and we'll end at 9 o'clock. So please uh, stay on. If you're just visiting for the evening, you're more than welcome to come back at 8.30 and to join us for that last 30-minute sit. Good. I'll see you in a few minutes. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.